The second reading tonight is uh, Ruth 1. It's on page 276 of this Pew Bible. Naomi and Ruth. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech, his wife's name Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Marlon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem, Judah, and they went to Moab and lived there. Now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpha and the other Ruth. After they had lived there about ten years, both Marlon and Kilion also died, and Naomi was left without her two sons and a husband. When she heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, Naomi and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. With her two daughters-in-law, she left the place where she had been living and set out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. Then Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show kindness to you, as you have shown to your dead and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. Then she kissed them, and they wept aloud and said to her, We will go back with you to your people. But Naomi said, Return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have any more sons who would become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. I am too old to have another husband. Even if I thought there was still hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight and then gave birth to sons, would you wait until they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters. It is more bitter for me than for you because the Lord's hand has gone out against me. At this they wept again. Then Orpha kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung to her. Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. But Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go, and where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if anything but death separates you from me. When Naomi realised that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. So the two women went out on until they came to Bethlehem. When they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them, and the women exclaimed, Can this be Naomi? Don't call me Naomi, she told them. Call me Mara, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. So Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by Ruth the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law, arriving in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. We give you thanks for this, the word of the Lord.
Well, this week uh, we're going to start uh, Ruth 1. Who's read Ruth here? Most of you. So how you can prepare for this series is just to read ahead. So today we're doing Ruth 1. What do you think we're going to do next week? Ruth 2. What about the week after? Ruth 3 and then Ruth 4 and then after Ruth 4? That's it. That's right. There's only four chapters. Um, so read ahead and do reflect on it. And so come um, having thought through these, uh, this uh, book. Uh, but let's pray once again and ask that God might help us understand what's this interesting story. What does it have to do with us? So let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we consider this uh, interesting story that has been recorded down and passed for thousands of years uh, down to us, we pray that we might help that you might help us see and understand what it is that this is teaching us about life and about you and about us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, in this uh, last week, um, being uncreative parents, we're quite boring parents, and so we're trying to keep our kids entertained. What we did was we decided to take our kids to the movies twice in this past week. Monday, they still were on holidays. We went to watch the movie Storks. And then yesterday, for Caleb's birthday, we went to watch uh, Pete's Dragon. Now, I enjoy watching movies, and I'm sure many of you do enjoy watching movies as well. And that's because movies are not simply and merely entertaining. Often with many movies, there's some hidden life lesson, or there's some hidden agenda, or some purpose that the movie is asserting. And so in the movie Storks, anyone seen that? Storks? No? Okay. You. You don't have kids, actually. <laughs> well, the moral of the story, what's the moral? What's the life lesson in the movie Storks? Well, if kids ask where babies come from, you tell them, well, the storks deliver them. That's the, that's the message. Well, I tried this with my own kids. I said, uh, do you know where babies come from? And I said, you know, it, just like the movie, Storks, they deliver them, they drop them on the roof, and we go and pick up the baby. Uh, our kids didn't believe us. I said, how does the stork put the baby in the mummy's tummy? So that didn't work. Uh, but then yesterday we watched another movie. We watched Pete's Dragon. And there's some hidden agenda, hidden message. And the message of Pete's Dragon, an old Disney movie made again. And that is, don't chop down forests because you'll be endangering the na natural habitat of dragons. That's what I got out of that movie. And so in many movies, there are some hidden message, hidden agenda, some life lessons, some purpose that it is asserting. But now let's think about our own life. Let's imagine that our life was like a movie. Your life was like a movie, put into a movie. Is there some hidden message or some bigger purpose to what happens in your life? Is there some deeper meaning? to what we experience in life. And so when we think about life in the normalities of life, in the mundaneness of life, what do we do? We wake up, we eat, we study, or we work, we play, we sleep, and the cycle begins again and again and again. Is there any meaning to all of that? Or when things go well in life, so our studies go well, our job goes well. Our relationship goes well. You know, that girl likes me or the guy likes me or my marriage goes well or church goes well. Is there any meaning to all of that when life goes well? Is there, is there any purpose to all of that? Or what about when things in life takes a turn 
for the worse. The despair of not getting that mark that I've worked so hard for. The setback of not getting that job or that promotion that I desired. The heartbreak of broken relationships when boyfriends, girlfriends break up, when engagements are called off, when even marriages are broken. Or the, the misery of that chronic illness that I suffer. Or the hopelessness of terminal cancer when that comes. Or the sadness of being confronted by the death of a loved one. When things are normal, is there a purpose? When things are good, is there a purpose? When things are bad, is there a purpose? Is there a meaning to all of it at all? Now, if we're all honest with ourselves, there are many things, stacks of things. Life just happens. Life happens to us, things that are beyond our control. And very often, it's just very hard to make sense of anything. We can't see beyond the horizon. We don't know why it's happening. And so what do we do? How do we live? What's the purpose out of it all? Just like a movie. Is there a hidden agenda? Is there a purpose? Is there a message? Well, as we begin to study the book of Ruth over the next four weeks, this book will in fact help us. This book will help us see that there, are, there is more than meets the eye. That there is in fact some purpose, some meaning in all that happens. In the normal stuff, in the good stuff, and in the bad stuff, there is meaning and purpose in the messiness and pains of life. And so that's what we see in the very chapter of Ruth. The first chapter of Ruth, we see here the messiness, the hardship. When you were thinking about that story as it was read out, the pain, the despair that this family experienced, the desperation, the hopelessness of life. You know, just like watching a movie, but what we heard was real. It did, in fact, happen. And so what we're going to do is try to work out, is there some purpose to what just did happen to this sad, poor family? Why was this part of Ruth's life and Naomi's life recorded down for us? And so what we'll do is we'll go over the story and let's see if we can make any sense of it all. Is there some message, some purpose, some hidden agenda? Now let's have a look. Keep your Bibles to Ruth and I'll point out some of these verses to us. First five verses first five verses of this book covers 10 years and that really just sets the scene for the rest of the book now we're told here that this was during the time when the judges ruled now that already tells us a lot about the the life the life of these people back then you see the time of the judges was a time of turmoil between the nation of israel and the surrounding nations now, if you have a look at it with me, if you've got your Bibles open, look at the verse just before the start of Ruth, the last verse of the book of Judges. What do we read there? In Judges 21, verse 25, the last verse, we read this. In, the days of Is in those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. Now, that's meant to tell us that this was dangerous times. No king to protect the people. No king to protect them from the neighboring nations. No standing army, no border security. And so the way of life back then was every man for himself. 
You have to look after yourself. You have to look after your own family. No one's going to look out for you. And so it's no surprise that when this famine occurred in the land, this seemingly normal family, husband, wife, and two boys, they left their home in Bethlehem and went to the land of their enemies, to Moab, where things seemed to be going better, east of Judah. They went there seeking a new lease on life, to start afresh, a new start. Now, it's also worth noticing here the meaning of their names. We're introduced to four people already. Elimelech. Elimelech literally means, my God is king. And so you must wonder what he would have been thinking. My name means, my God is king, but he must be thinking, my God is king, but yet there is this famine in our land. God, what are you doing? I can't even provide for my family. And then we have Naomi. Naomi means pleasant or sweet to ordinary people. And then they've got their two sons. Now here it gets a bit more interesting. Not sure what the parents were thinking when they named their sons this, but Marlon means sickly. Imagine giving your son that name. You're a sickly child. And the other son, Kilion, means weak. Imagine naming your son sickly and weak. But anyway, they did. What happens next? Well, they move into the neighboring nation, hoping to survive. But Elimelech, the father, he dies shortly after moving there. The two sons, they marry local Moabite women. Orpah. Now, by the way, if you don't know, Orpah is the official name of Oprah. That's what's written on her birth certificate. It just changed over the years. I I know that somehow, but I don't know why. And the other wife, Ruth. Now, the story progresses quite quickly. Ten years they live there, and then, you know, the two sons, the, the sickly son and the weak son, the two sons, they die. They die. And so here, in the beginning of this book, we're introduced to six people. By the end of the fifth verse, three of them are dead, half of them are dead, and we are left with three widows, childless widows. And so what was just an ordinary family? How do you make sense of such a life? How do you make sense of the hardship and the pain and the sorrow and the grief that they experienced? I mean, in the ancient world, it's quite different to now. Being a widow in the ancient world, it was a terrible thing. To not have a husband to protect you, to provide for you, to care for you. But what makes it worse, a bit like adding salt to the wounds, if that's the saying, salt to the wounds, they were childless. That would have been devastating in the ancient world. No children to continue the family line. No children to pass on the inheritance. And so that means no hope for the family at all. And so things went from bad to worst. Now there's this unknown author, this quote by an unknown author I came across. He said this, We are born wet, naked and hungry. And then things get worse. And so in a sense, that's the case for Naomi, Orpah, and Ruth. So what happens next in this painful, sad life of these three women? Well, Naomi, she decides to go back home, back to her home country. 
and in the kindness of her heart, she doesn't make Orpah and Ruth go with her. She doesn't say to the two daughters-in-law, you girls, you stick with me. You marry my sons, they're now dead, but you stick with me. You provide for me like they would have. She doesn't do that. She didn't say that. In the kindness and generosity of her heart, she said, you girls, in verse 8, go back to your mother's house. I mean, I've got nothing for you now. I'm a hopeless woman with no future. Go home to your mother. Marry someone else. And so when Orpah and Ruth, they refuse, and you just need to imagine the scene here, tears and weeping and crying and clinging onto each other. Naomi, she tries to convince them. Look at verse Verse 11 onwards. She goes to her daughters-in-law. She says, look, I can't give you any more sons to be your husbands. And even if I were to get married again and have another son, you're not going to hang around for that son to grow up so that you can remarry. I mean, you can just imagine that scene. They're in tears clinging to each other, weeping. And so Orpah, what does she do? Well, she yields. With tears, kisses her mother-in-law, and leaves. But Ruth, what does she do? Well, she clings on. She clings on. She will not let go. And she goes on to make these extraordinary promises. And that's worth reading. Have a look, verses 16 and 17. She says to her mother-in-law, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. And she goes on to say, May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if anything but death separates you and me. What's Ruth doing here? She is tying her life to a hopeless woman. Her destiny, her future, her hopes to a hopeless woman. Why? So that she can also tie herself to Naomi's God. I mean, this is extraordinary devotion and loyalty here. Now, now this is something we may not realize. But for Ruth to say and to promise such a thing, to want to do such a thing, that was costly for Ruth. I mean, she was willing to go back with Naomi to a place that was not home, where she would have been considered a foreigner, an outsider, or even an enemy. You see, they, they had bad blood between them, Moab and Israel. They had many fights and many wars. They're not the best of neighbors. But she was willing, at her cost, cling herself to this hopeless woman so that she might cling herself to this woman's God. And so Naomi, knowing that she can't convince Ruth otherwise, they set back for Jerusalem. And when they arrived, look at verse 19. We read, the whole town was stirred because of them. The women exclaimed, can this be Naomi? Which suggests perhaps Naomi was a prominent woman in the city. But then look at what Naomi says. She says, don't call me that. Don't call me Naomi. Not Naomi anymore. Not pleasant or sweet anymore. But look at verse 20. Call me Mara, which means bitter. She goes on to say, verse 21, I went away full husband, two sons, but the Lord has brought me back empty. You see, it adds meaning to that phrase, bittersweet. She was sweet, but now no longer sweet nor pleasant, but bitter. 
Life is difficult. Life is miserable. And so that is the story so far. How do you make sense of such a life? How do you make sense of these events when things go from bad to worse, when things are so gloomy and bleak, when things of life are so heartbreaking and hopeless? What purpose could there be for these two childless widows? And I wonder whether that's a bit like our life sometimes. You know, things happen in life. But what's the point of it all? Is there a purpose in all that happens to me in my life? Well, that's what we're thinking about. And so now we've seen the story. It's a bit like just watching the movie. We've seen it. But now let's reflect on it. Is there a hidden message, a secret agenda, a purpose to that story? Not just entertainment, but is there some purpose in this story? Well, I would say that in the story of Ruth, and I would even say in our own life story, if we go a bit deeper, under the surface of the story, we'll actually start to see the unseen hand of God at work. We'll start to see the unseen hand of God at work. And that is because God is sovereign in all the events that happened in this chapter. God was, in fact, in total control. Nothing takes God by surprise. There's no accidents when it comes, it comes to God. The unseen hand of God is always at work as we go deeper under the surface of this story. And as we reflect on this story again, there are hints we got in this story about the sovereignty of God. We got that throughout this passage. God never speaks in this chapter. In fact, God never speaks in this whole book. In fact, God never sends a prophet to speak to the people, to say the words of God to the people. But yet in the normalities of life, in the mundaneness of life, or even in the messiness and pains of life, God remains sovereign. That is what we're meant to see. So it's a bit like, you know, an onion. You see the outside of the onion, you see the surface, but now we're peeling a layer away. What are we seeing? Well, let's look deeper and pick up on those hints of God's sovereignty. Consider this. Firstly, why was there a famine in the land in the first place? You know, was that something that took God by surprise? Was it like, oh, I didn't, I didn't know that was going to happen. I stopped the rain and there's no crops and people are starving. Did that take God by surprise? Or was God involved, sovereign over the famine that happened in the first place? Well, you see, the scriptures would tell us that God is sovereign. It's a bit like when we say, well, why does it rain? Well, it's true to say it rains because of evaporation and then condensation. But it's also true to say, as we heard in Isaiah in our first reading, God is the one who sends the rain. God is sovereign over the processes of this universe and this world. Or when we ask, who controls the weather? Why does it happen? Well, you can say that it's because of the rotation of the earth around the sun and its orbit and the distance and so forth. It's true to say that. And, and the effects of pressure, high pressure, low pressure, and, and El Nino, whatever that is. But it's also true to say it is God who controls the weather. It is God who sends the rain. It is God who stops the rain. And so here, the famine was no accident in God's sovereignty. 
It was, in fact, under God's control. And do you pick that up? Naomi picked that up. Naomi realized that it was God. Look at verse 6. Look at verse 6 with me. When she, Naomi, heard in Moab that the Lord, it is the Lord, had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them. Now, do you notice what she's saying there? You see, God was not just sovereign over the famine that happened, but God was also the one who ended the, ended the famine, opened the heavens so that it would rain and provide food. Naomi realized that that was God's doing. And so, you see, we're not just looking on the surface now. We're digging deeper. We're seeing that God is at work, the unseen hand of God at work. But more than that, do you notice what else Naomi realized about God's doing, the unseen hand of God? What did she say when her sons died? What did she say? Man, this is unbelievable. How can cancer take my firstborn away? Why did that heart attack kill my second son? Boy, that's not what she said, was it? Look at what she said. Look at verse 13. It is because the Lord's hand has gone out against me. Look at verse 20. It is because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. Look at verse 21. I went away full, but the Lord, not an accident, not just some strange uh, natural event that led to this, but the Lord has brought me back empty. The Lord has afflicted me. The Lord has brought misfortune upon me. You see what Naomi realized there? She, in fact, got her theology right. She understood that God is sovereign, that whatever happens, God is involved, God is in control. Of course, we're not told in this chapter why they died, why Limelech died, why the two sons died, why God allowed it. Could have been anything, could have been natural causes, could have been punishment. We're just not told. But what is true? was what Naomi realized, that God is sovereign even over the death of her husband and her two sons. Now, in saying all this, God's sovereignty does not take away from human responsibility. Elimelech was responsible for moving the family to Moab. Naomi was responsible for deciding to move back to Bethlehem. Ruth was responsible for choosing to cling to Naomi. But at the very same time, God remains sovereign, in complete control over the course of events. God was involved in the very details of life. That's what we're meant to pick up. The clues are there. But, but what's, we, what's important here is, is not merely that God is sovereign, but that he's sovereign in bringing about his purposes. God's not just in control for the sake of it, but God is in control to bring about his purposes. And do you pick that up when we read that story before? Do you pick up that hint, that clue? Naomi knew that. Naomi believed that, that God will bring about his purposes. I mean, she experienced such tragic disaster. Her life before her was pitch black and hopeless. But, but do you notice what she said to her daughters-in-law? I mean, she didn't say, go away now. You know, and in the typical Australian greeting, I hope things go well for you. But forget this God we worship, this God who took away my husband and my two sons, 
who allowed me to suffer such grief. I mean, did she say that? Well, no. What did she say instead? Look at verses 8 and 9. She's experienced this hardship already, but look at verses 8 and 9. May the Lord show kindness to you as you have shown to your dead and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. You see, again, Naomi got her theology right. God was not only sovereign, but God is the source of any blessing there is to be. She shows and she knows that God desires to bless. And perhaps here, she was speaking better than she knew because if you continue to read the story of Ruth, you'll see that she did end up in the home of another husband. But you see, in this story, there's another clue here. It wasn't just Naomi who knew this, who knew that God will bring about his purposes. Ruth also sees and understands. Did you pick that up? Another clue in this story. And so when Naomi, she painted the world black, it was hopeless. And she said to her daughters, don't follow me. But Ruth would hold on to Naomi's hand and walk through that darkness together. Why did Ruth do that? Why would she attach herself to such a hopeless woman? Well, because she knew that that was a small price to pay to attach herself to Naomi's God. You see, if there are to be any blessings at all, she knew this, if there are to be any blessings at all, any hope at all, any purpose in all of this, it is to be found in Naomi's God. And so when we get to the end of the chapter, have a look now. We do get, in fact, a little glimmer of hope. A glimmer of hope that God is, in fact, doing something. God is, in fact, sovereign and bringing about his purpose. Do you notice that little glimmer of hope? You see, the chapter began with a famine, with despair, with hardship. But how did the chapter end? Look at verse 22. As the barley harvest was beginning, something's changing. No longer famine and despair, something's growing. There is hope. And so, in a sense, that leaves us anticipating what will happen. What will God do? How is God bringing about his purposes? And here, it's a plug. Come back next week and the week after to hear the rest of the story. But what we see here, the, the, the purpose, the hidden message, you know, not just the surface of the story, but we're going deeper. What we see here is that the, in the pains, in the messiness of life, God remains sovereign in bringing about his purposes. But of course, at this stage, these women had no idea what was before them. They had no idea of the significance of what God would do through them for the salvation of the world. At this stage, they couldn't even see over the horizon. They could not make sense of all that was happening to them. But they trusted God nonetheless. And so now, just like you know, watching a movie, only that this was real, just like watching a movie, you know, we see that message, that the, the moral of the movie, the story, the hidden purpose, and that is the unseen hand of God is at work in all the details of life. God is sovereign in bringing about his purposes, yet to be seen now, but he is working and bringing about his purposes. 
And in some way, it leaves us a bit uh, sort of hanging, doesn't it? Leaves us anticipating, hanging. And I suspect it's a bit like what our life is like now. You know, things happen to us. We experience difficulties. The older you get, the more difficulties you experience. Tragedies, more, more of it you'll see. More grief, more pains, more hardships, more sorrows. Financial difficulties, as you grow up, you see more of that. Relationship issues, you'll see more of that. Chronic illness, it'll become a reality for many. And even death in the family, you only have to live long enough to experience that. And so just like Naomi and Ruth, we we can't see over the horizon in our life. This is our life now, this is our life story, all that we have lived. We can't see, we can't make sense of all that has happened So in one way, we are similar to their experience. But yet we are different, different to Naomi and Ruth. You see, we not only see now the ending of their story, we now live in a time after the death and resurrection of the descendant of Naomi, the descendant of Ruth. We now live on this side of the death and resurrection of Jesus. And so what that means is that we have insight into, you know, this hidden message, this purpose of God. We have been given insight into the sovereign purposes of God. You see, for us now, different to Naomi and Ruth, we're not left in the dark. We don't need to be uh, feeling that we need to hang out for some more. We have been given insight into what God is doing in the lives of those who trust in him. And do you know what that is? We're given this in an extremely clear way in the New Testament. What that is, is this. In Romans 8, and we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Do you see what that is saying? In all circumstances of life, the normal stuff, the good stuff, the successes, the blessings. I feel like sometimes we make too much of our successes that God only works when things are good. God only works when we succeed. Well, no. In this story, we see God continues to work even in the hardships, in the pain, in the sorrows, in the grief. God is working. God remains sovereign. Nothing we experience is meaningless. The unseen hand of God is always at work. I mean, that is what Naomi and Ruth will come to realize by the end of this book. But I wonder whether this is something we realize now on this side of the cross of Christ. Is this something we realize now that we have that confidence that Ruth and Naomi did not? We have that confidence. Do we realize that, know that, believe that, and trust that? I mean, we will experience all sorts of things in life and things will test us. But do I actually believe that God is sovereign now, in my life, now, in bringing about his purposes now, through my experiences? We're told we can believe that. I'll end now sharing with you two two stories, two experiences, perhaps the most difficult experience I've had since beginning ministry here at this church. I've been here for almost five years and the top two difficult experiences that we've experienced as a family. The first, none of you will know this and I won't give 
too much detail anyway. But the first experience that we've experienced that was so difficult was during our first year of ministry here, towards the end of the year. Nothing to do with this church, so you don't need to worry. But it was something we discovered in our extended family. It was difficult. It was heartbreaking. There were tears. It was just unbelievable to discover that that can happen in my family, that God would allow that to happen in my family. It was a time of tremendous sadness, but we had to deal. Do I trust this? That even in the normal stuff, even in the good stuff, and also even in the bad stuff that happens in life, God is sovereign, bringing about his purposes. The unseen hand of God is always at work, doing good for those who love him. And so how do you live? How do you persevere? Well, like Ruth, God in his kindness gave us sufficient faith, sufficient strength, sufficient courage to, to cling on to this God who promises such a thing, that he works for the good of those who love him. And in the kindness of God, despite what has happened, it was terrible. First year of ministry, no one will know this. It's only something within the family. We have already seen some good. God bring about some good. That's the first. The second difficult experience in pastoral ministry, very difficult, and many of you will still remember this, was what happened last year. What happened last year when a young man from our congregation was tragically killed. I mean, to deal with something like that, unbelievable, unbelievable. Now, many of you will still remember that. His anniversary is actually coming up in two weeks' time. And so I'm feeling that, but it happened the day after my birthday. But anyway, what was it during that time that would bring comfort? How do we make sense of life when such tragic things happen? How do you make sense? How, how do you find comfort? Well, just like Ruth and Naomi, just like what we read now on this side of the cross, what brought comfort to, to not only me, but the parents, was this verse. We know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. It was this verse that that man, that young man, memorized. God works for the good of those who love him. And so in your own life story, you know, the story, things happen, it is a story, but what's the purpose? Well, we know now what God is doing in your life. God works for the good of those who love him in the good times, in the normal mundane times, in the bad times. And so how do you make sense out of it all? Well, you can, like Ruth, choose. You can, like Ruth, choose to cling to this God with what we know now. You've got no excuse to. We know this now. We know that verse now. Cling to God who would promise such a thing. In all that happens, he's working for the good of those who love him. Now, we might not see the good that might come out of it. We might never see the good that will come out until the day we die, until we meet God and we ask him. But the promise of God is that it will. It will work out for good. That is God's promise and God is sovereign to bring about his good purposes. True for Ruth, still true today for us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that in your mercy and kindness, you did not leave us in the dark, but you've made known to us 
your wonderful purposes, that you do work for the good of those who love you. And so we pray, Lord, we plead, Lord, that you help us. Give us the strength and faith to always cling on to you. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.